You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, there we go. So what I was saying before then is I'll tell you a little bit about some of the books that don't exist on the back table at the moment, okay, so that you can uh, um, see them. And uh, because I didn't bring enough books with me for various reasons, do have a look at the Mount St. Helens website, mshcreationcenter.org, or you could just go straight to the web store, mshcreationcenter.org forward slash shop page, and you'll find uh, those uh, products there. And because you've been here, you can put in this secret coupon code that I'm not going to be telling other people. (laughs) If you choose to tell other people, that's your business. I won't know. KCC Equip. If you put that coupon code in when you are checking out, there will be no shipping costs. So you'll be able to buy them as if you'd been here. I know there'll be a delay. It'll take a little while for them to get to you. But uh, you will get them. Uh, Some of them have to be sort of printed and then delivered straight to you, and uh, that will happen. And that takes about three weeks altogether, but they will get to you at the right price. So that's those things if you're you're there. So I do apologize that they've run out. The books that I did have there that I wanted to tell you about, The Biblical Age of the Earth goes through that biblical calculation that I showed you before. Only Believe is about apologetics. It's the easy guide to presuppositional apologetics. Uh, the Canadian apologist Saiten Bruggenkates wrote the foreword for that book. Itching Ears, it's about Christian doctrine and how the most important primary Christian doctrines are all founded and based and reflected in the book of Genesis. So it covers the certain, it's not a systematic theology, it's not everything, but it covers the doctrines such as the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, uh, doctrines of salvation. Uh, the bodily return of Jesus, those sort of things, and uh, shows that they're all reflected in the book of Genesis. The Six Days of Genesis uh, was my original commentary, first published in 2003, um, uh, first uh, commentary on the book of Genesis, uh, giving you information about uh, creation, um, biblical creation ideas in a biblical order. Don't Miss the Boat is about the flood, it's uh, telling you about the uh, the science and the theology of the flood. Darwin and Darwinism was my brief biography, thumbnail biography, written in conjunction with my friend Ian McNaughton, a uh, biography of uh, Charles Darwin. That was written for the 209th, sorry, the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin, which was in 2009. Charles Darwin was born in 1809. Uh, where birds eat horses, you've seen uh, that uh, pre- presentation that goes into more detail and shows you exactly how to find those three uh, ideas of um, uh, fuzzy words, magic words, and bias words. And uh, I originally wrote that. Most of my books I write for adults who have a reading age of 11. 
That's how I do things. It's a, it's a nice trick. I try not to make them complicated. That's my whole point. That's not, I'm not insulting you by that. I'm just trying to make it easy for you to read. And that's what I do. That's the sort of book I want to read. And that's the sort of book I'm trying to produce. Whether I succeed all the time or not, you will judge. But that's the idea. However, I took that book to a homeschool conference and a number of the parents having picked it up said, we would like a homeschool curriculum based on that book. So that's what the one with the white cover in the middle is. That's a, that is a curriculum to help uh, teenagers go through that particular book with lots of exercises on the subject. Web development out of the box is about how to build websites uh, using um, uh, HTML5, CSS3, uh, PHP, uh, using um, WordPress or Classic Press bases and how to put plugins and so on. And it's all that is, that is a homeschool curriculum that's all designed for age uh, 13 upwards. Okay, so that's that's the idea behind that. Uh, it's uh, so there's not a lot of Christian content there really, apart from the fact that all the examples I give you are Christian websites. But it's it's basically a homeschool curriculum on teaching web development. Uh, also, it for homeschool education. These are sort of factually based books. I'm not giving instructions on experiments or a route through these. These are just units that I'm producing. I'm hoping eventually be about 16 units. They are on physical science. They're for uh, young people aged between about uh, 16. 16 and 19, well, 15 and 18 maybe. Um, this, uh, these are uh, physical science because at that age, when you're dealing with the rhetorical level, in other words, how you actually use science, how you actually think through it uh, properly and logically, um, there isn't any need for biology. Biology is for younger students, and yet there's so much time wasted with biology at this age, and it shouldn't be. Uh, in Britain, uh, this is one of the things the British schools get right, they do not have a system where you do chemistry one year and physics another year and biology another year. They actually have to do all of them all at the time. Small amounts of them, all of them all the time. And chemistry and physics are the two more important elements because they're the real science. Anything that is real science in biology is actually biophysics or biochemistry. The other stuff in biology is your imagination, your evolution and fairy tales and so on. <clears throat> I could tell you an anecdote about when I went to, to take a job at a school in South Wales. The head of science was also the head of chemistry, and he was also a communist and atheist. So he was not a, he, he was a hostile witness to what I'm about to say. And the biology, uh, sorry, the chemistry department and the physics department were right next to each other. But the biology department was across the other side of the school campus. And I asked him, why is that? Why has it been built like that? Why have you got the chemistry and physics department here and the biology department over the far side? Well, I, the answer was that really to do with history, the way it's been built. But he said, it's because here in chemistry and physics, we do real science, whereas over there, they teach fairy stories. That was a communist atheist. <laughs> okay, I mentioned to you briefly the other day about uh, my new ministry, which God willing will be based uh, somewhere near here. Uh, but we'll soon be up on the web. Anyway, it will exist on the internet. Strong Tower Ministries, and there's a website for that. There is a holding site there at the moment, but there will be a full website there eventually. Okay, that's my introduction there. Let's get into the topic now. Otherwise, I will be in danger of overrunning yet again, and I don't want to do that. Okay. Right, my topic uh, that I want to cover now is called No Compromise. Yes, sir. It's Mount St. Helens now. Sorry, No Compromise this afternoon. Thank you. Correction. <laughs> my topic now 
is Mount St. Helens. So right, I've got it all here. Everything was all ready. My topic now is Mount St. Helens. Here it is. There's Mount St. Helens with my wife and myself and the volcano in the background. Just to clear up confusion, by the way, um, sometimes people get confused about this. My wife is called Jerry. And people who don't stop to think uh, will spell it out J-E-R-R-Y as if it was a man's name. It's not. It's a lady's name. It's short for Geraldine. Okay? She's called Geraldine. And she spells her name G-E-R-I. Jerry. Okay? So uh, that's my wife, Jerry, with the volcano behind us. Uh, You can't see the volcano in that particular picture because that's what you usually get. The mountain is almost always covered in cloud. Um, But sometimes you can get a clear view like there. And when you get a clear view, it's fascinating to be able to see the uh, the crater and to be able to see the large mound, the lava dome that's grown in the center of the crater there since the 1980 eruption. Now, the Mount St. Helens Creation Center is based at the closest point on the interstate to the volcano in the small city of Castle Rock. And I've already told you a little bit about that early this morning, how we hold events there, how I like to give people a talk about the volcano and then take them out to see the volcano. We run excursions around the south side. We run excursions to the east side where you can see Spirit Lake. Most of our excursions are on the west side. By the way, we do also sometimes take, uh, slightly more rarely, but we do also take excursions into the Columbia Gorge so that you can see things that were affected by the Missoula flood there. And we have once done a very long day trip uh, taking people from Castle Rock over to eastern Washington uh, to have a look at the Dry Falls. Well, the Dry Falls are probably just as close to you here as they are to me. It's four hours' drive from Castle Rock to the Dry Falls. It took us seven hours to get here. So since it's almost the same route, I would suggest it's probably about three and a half hours for you to get to Dry Falls. Anyone been to the Dry Falls here? A few of you. It's worth looking at. Huge waterfall, four times the size of the Niagara Falls. But there's no water going over them. And water must have gone over them. Even evolutionary scientists agree with this now. Just for a couple of days, as water spilled out of the Missoula flood and went down eventually into the Columbia River and carved out the gorge and so on. Uh, A very, very strong evidence which is compatible with the idea of catastrophic uh, uh, destruction. It's worth looking at. And what I'm going to tell you about Mount St. Helens is about catastrophic destruction. Think about the Missoula flood is that we don't have people here today who saw that. We don't have eyewitnesses, whereas with Mount St. Helens, we have lots of eyewitnesses. There are people who live in the area who remember. There's people here who have been telling me they remember the volcano erupting. And uh, there are people who are eyewitnesses to the event. I've got recordings in the Mount St. Helens Creation Center of two men who actually came to faith in Christ as a result of the events of the uh, of the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980, which is, uh, which is wonderful, which is why I've had them recorded and put onto one of the displays there for people to listen to. Um, but uh, the Missoula flood was a catastrophic event. We think that the Missoula lake was sort of leftover flood water trapped inland, and eventually as the glaciers melted, the water escaped, and gouged out uh, huge areas of land in a space of about two or three days. There, as I said, is where you find uh, Mount St. Helens, uh, Mount St. Helens Creation Center. You can see that map on our website, and there's the sign pointing to it. 
Okay, your Twitter hashtags, I've only got one for this one, hash MSHCC. Those of you who want to tweet little messages about this talk, uh, that's what you can do there. I didn't see many people doing that before. Maybe there are some who want to do that. Mount St. Helens is beautiful. I love living and working near Mount St. Helens. Yes, I want to move away uh, because there are other areas of the country that are beautiful too. But there's no doubt that Mount St. Helens is one of the most beautiful places in uh, in the world. There's a huge crater on the top of the volcano. The crater is a mile wide. But it left a lot of devastation when it erupted in 1980. It left huge amounts of devastation. The countryside was devastated. Forests were devastated. One of uh, the exhibits in the Mount St. Helens Creation Center, which gets mixed reviews, is a, which basically a display cabinet containing lots of bottles in it. And all those bottles contain ash from the volcanic eruption from different areas of the Pacific Northwest. And people from, say, if they travel from the Southeast, if they travel from Florida or Alabama or Georgia or whatever, and they come to us, they're not that interested in that. And people certainly coming here from uh, from Britain, Australia. We've had visitors from uh, Uganda, from the Philippines, from Japan, uh, South Korea. All visitors during, from all those countries during my time in the uh, center. And they're not that interested in uh, those bottles of dust. But people who are from the Pacific Northwest, on actually both sides of the international border, people from Washington State, from Oregon, from Idaho from British Columbia, they love to stand at that exhibition and they will talk for hours about their memories, if they're old enough to remember it. So it's a very, I'm not moving that exhibition for that reason. It's uh, people just stand there and talk and talk and talk. It's amazing how you can have an exhibit that does that. And some of you have given me uh, uh, talks about, have told me about things that you remember from the time of the eruption. There's a lot of destruction though. Here's the east side of the volcano, and this is a recent photograph that I took uh, last summer. This is the area known as the Scorched Forest. Now, there are new trees growing, but in this whole countryside, there are scorched trees around the place and trees lying on the ground, and new trees have grown up between them in the 40 years since, but it's, it's very much a devastated landscape. There's Sp- uh, Spirit Lake. Closer view of Spirit Lake. Spirit Lake was a very popular vacation spot before the eruption. Um, there were campsites. There were lodges around the banks of Spirit Lake. Today, you cannot get to it except by hiking. You've got to drive along a narrow, winding forest road where parts of the road have fallen away. And then you park. Uh, they do at least have a parking lot. And you walk just one mile to the banks of the lake. But you, in that one mile, you are descending 600 feet. And that's pretty easy. You get to the banks of the lake, 600 feet. You stand there. You look at the views. You look at the logs. And then you suddenly realize you've got to climb up 600 feet to get back to your car. And that is tough. It takes me. This is, you know, because I don't, I don't rush with this. Because I'm pretty overweight. I don't rush with this. So it's always the last thing I do on the tour. And it takes me 25 minutes to get down to the lake. And it takes me about an hour to get back. Seriously. 
This is on the south side. This is where you can see the Lahar viewpoint. This was the only point on the south side where the mud flows came through and devastated everything. So you can see a tree was knocked down there uh, 40 years ago. There used to be an enormous glacier on the southeast, southeast of the volcano called the Shoestring Glacier. That was completely melted and obviously hasn't filled in again. So you've got this enormous gorge there on the, uh, going sort of almost vertically up at one point on the south side of the volcano. And that's a fascinating place to visit and a wonderful view of the volcano there. On the west side, you get views. Uh, quite often, the approach on the west side, the, the views are sort of mysterious. One of the nice things about going on the west side, apart from the fact that you've got proper roads, so you're not going to fall off the road, apart from that, um, it's you only get glimpses of the volcano. As you go closer, you get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until eventually you get to the uh, uh, forest learning, uh, sorry, the um, Johnson Ridge Observatory, where you can see straight into the crater. So you, it's being unveiled a bit at a time, just like a detective story. Uh, so that's that's quite a good way of approaching the volcano for that reason. I took this from a view uh, viewpoint called the Forest Learning Center, which is halfway up the um, the, the road towards uh, the the Johnston Ridge Observatory. Here's a school group that have been walking round the uh, Hummocks Trail. There they are, and. Uh, you've got the volcano in the background. So you've got lots of hummocks behind them as well. The hummocks are the little lumps. Uh, when the um, landslide came through, it was behaving like a fluid, not like a liquid, more like a fluid. If you imagine being in the kitchen and you put a baking sheet at an angle, you tip a bag of flour on the top of the baking sheet, it flows down a bit like a liquid, but unlike a liquid, it will stop in lumps every so often, won't it? because it's really solid. As it loses energy, it uh, sort of goes back into lumps. And that's what happened here. You've got the landslide coming out of the volcano, across the valley, filling in the, uh, the valley, hitting uh, Johnston Ridge and bouncing down here. Uh, and every time you lost a bit of energy, you get these hummocks. The gaps between the hummocks, you get lakes, uh, little well, little ponds, um, which there's no fish in any of those ponds. Obviously, they wouldn't have been able to climb over the hummocks. But amphibians did, so they're a they're a marvelous place for amphibians. Before the 1980 eruption, the Pacific, um, the Pacific salamander was very nearly extinct, but it's uh, it's thriving around these areas. The Pacific salamander is fascinating. Lives in these ponds like any other amphibian. It lays its eggs in the water. The eggs hatch out into tadpoles. The tadpoles swim around. They gradually metamorphose, growing legs. They come out of the water, uh, and then they're able to mate again and lay eggs, and the cycle continues. But after the eruption, something odd happened. Something odd happened. And this is what salamanders do. Salamanders do something very unusual at times of population stress. When the population is too low, they do something called neoteny. And what that means is they actually get to sexual maturity as tadpoles. And they mate in the water as tadpoles. They don't bother becoming adult salamanders. And do you know that that happened after the eruption for... Uh, for about uh, 30 years, three zero years, there were hardly any adult salamanders seen around the hummocks from 1980 until until 2010. Hardly any, because they were breeding as tadpoles in the water. How did they know? How did they evolve a mechanism so that they would suddenly start breeding that way? And how did they evolve a mechanism so that in 2010, they suddenly switched back to their normal method of breeding on land? 
The answer is, of course, they didn't know. These are things that God programmed into their DNA because God gave many animals the ability to survive, put DNA code within them that would enable them to survive. This is part of God's design. These animals clearly could not have evolved. They are created animals. God created them exactly that way. You might not have thought that was very important unless you knew that one of the other animals in the hummocks that's seen in the hummocks a lot did something rather analogous, a completely different type of animal. The largest animal that you will ever see in the hummocks is the Roosevelt elk. And Roosevelt elk live in large herds, you know, 20 to 30 animals altogether. Wonderful, majestic animals as they roam across the plain. They're wonderful animals and so tasty. When I said that in Canada, they all went, (laughs) (laughs) but they are. Actually, one time I took a school group here that I didn't take a photo. As we were taking the photo, a herd of elk walked across behind. That was just perfect, but it hasn't happened since. And I didn't have a camera or I didn't have my phone with me or anything. Nobody had anything to take a photo. It was a real shame. So you're just going to have to believe me. It's like a fisherman's story. You know, the one that got away. Was, should have seen the size of the one that got away. Oh dear. You'll have to believe me, but it did. But um, anyway, I've got no proof of that. So maybe I'm making it up. Um, but the elk, the elk cows give birth once every two years. So I know there's, there's baby elk, uh, there's elk calves every year, but not all the females are giving birth every year. Some do and some don't. They give birth once every two years. But after the eruption, for a period of about six or seven years, they were giving birth to two or three calves per year. Their breeding cycle was quadrupled at least. And then after about six or seven years, they went back to their normal breeding pattern. Why am I telling you that on the aside? Because some people tell me that after the flood, there is no way that the world could have been colonized after the flood. No way at all. Animals, so that proves that there couldn't have been a flood. Animals would have died out. But if God could make animals speed up after the 1980 eruption around Mount St. Helens, God could have made animals all over the world speed up their reproduction uh, abilities after the flood. It makes sense. I'm not proving. That's not proof. I can't tell you categorically that's what happened after the flood. But I'm telling you that it is possible. And we know that it's possible with at least two types of animals. And there's only two animals that have been studied that way. And there's only one creation scientist who had the ability to study that. A friend of mine called Dr. Keith Swenson. Um, So views of the Mount St. Helens are all over the place. I've shown you lots of views of Mount St. Helens, but you will not be able to see this view. If you drive to Mount St. Helens today, you are not going to see that view because that is what Mount St. Helens looked like before the 1980 eruption. Now, I've got a couple of slides here that I can skip through quickly because when I first developed this talk, it was when I was giving the talk in Britain and I wanted to show people where Washington State was because most of them don't know. Most people in Britain think that Washington State must be around here, you know, that Washington, D.C. must be the capital of Washington State and it's over there. So I had to show them that it wasn't, you know, I had to show them that it's actually in the Pacific Northwest like that and that actually uh, Mount St. Helens itself is in Skamania County, but you can't get to it from any of the roads in Skamania County, you've got to actually approach it from Cowlitz County, uh, which is where Castle Rock is and drive that way. Um, 
Okay, now here's Mount St. Helens in 1980. At 8.32 on the morning of Sunday, May the 18th, 1980, there was a 5.1 magnitude earthquake, so the whole of the north face of the volcano, there's no sound on this, by the way, I don't keep trying to turn it up, the whole of the north face of the volcano fell away into the valley below. Now, that released the pressure that had built up behind so that there was a steam detonation blast. The landslide was moving at 150 miles per hour, but the blast moved at 350 miles per hour, so it very quickly overtook the landslide. And the blast was uh, so powerful that when it hit the trees, it snapped the trees uh, just above the roots of the volcano, uh, just above the roots of the tree, leaving the roots in the ground. Here's an animation of the landslide going into Spirit Lake, and it pushed the water out of Spirit Lake 800 feet up the hillside opposite, where the blast had already knocked down all the trees. So it picked up a lot of those trees and washed the trees back down to uh, where the lake used to be. It washed the trees back down 500 feet. And you think, where's the difference of 300 feet? The answer is that the landslide had filled it in. So, you know, the animation doesn't show this. There's the lake. The landslide pushed the water out of the lake 800 feet up the hillside, picks up trees that have been knocked down, and the water washes back down again, but the landslide has filled in that area. So the new lake is 300 feet above where the old lake used to be. It's not 300 feet deeper. It's 300 feet above. That means that the lodges and hotels that used to be around the banks of Spirit Lake, they're not even at the bottom of the lake. They are 300 feet below the bottom of the lake. So much devastation happened. Trees were snapped from their roots up to 17 miles away from the volcano. 230 square miles of forest was completely destroyed. It was a devastating event. 57 people were killed by that eruption, which happened early on Sunday morning. The man who founded the Mount St. Helens Creation Center is called Lloyd Anderson, and he often used to say to uh, to his audiences that God was merciful on May the 18th, 1980. And you know what? I agree with him. That sounds hard on the 57, the families of the 57 people who died. But you know, it was a Sunday. We already we mentioned in the previous talk that the world has changed. In 1980, not many people used to work on Sundays, did they? Not many of the loggers worked on Sundays then. If the eruption had happened on the Saturday or on the Monday, thousands of people would have been logging in the hills. There would have been a a death toll within four figures. Also, God was merciful because the eruption went northwards. There are lots of towns on the south, southeast and southwest of the volcano. If the eruption had happened southwards, the town of towns of Cougar and Woodland would have been completely destroyed, and large parts of Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon would also have been damaged. But north of the volcano, there are no towns north of the volcano for 250 miles, if you look at a map. God was merciful. Well, again, Lloyd used to say he, was, he believed that in these last days, God was reminding us that he does destroy things catastrophically. And 57 people did die. So that's, uh, that's the events then of the morning of um, May the 18th, which is just a fascinating event. And uh, my 
computer is frozen at this point, so I'm going to keep talking while I try and uh, restore the, um, yeah, it's actually closed, it's actually crashed, the whole program has crashed. I'm going to keep talking, but um, Mount St. Helens, it's a fascinating place there, and as I said, the devastation was enormous. You got a large amount of devastation. It's very interesting to note, by the way, that um, one of the people who died there, a man called Harry Truman, had said that not even God himself could move him from the mountain. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that sometimes, this is not a general rule, and I'm not making a theological point, but sometimes when people are prepared to blaspheme God in that way, that God will show them that these things are not the case, that he is in control. Remember, this is God's world, and he decides on these things, not us. Okay? So... Here we are, it's coming back up again, then I can, uh, I can start again from the point where I left off. Here we go. Come on, it's taking its time, I do apologize for this. Here is what the volcano used to look like then before the eruption. Betwi- this t- was taken from a ridge five miles north of Mount St. Helens. Between the, ver- the summit of Mount St. Helens, 9,677 feet above sea level, between that and this ridge, uh, there's a, there was a steep V-shaped valley completely covered with old-growth forest. They built, they put a trailer, the geologists studying the volcano put a trailer on this ridge because they felt they were safe. They were five miles from the volcano. Nothing is going to affect them. They were expecting to get a spectacular view. Because everybody knows that volcanoes erupt upwards, right? They should do. Mostly they do. But unfortunately, on this occasion, they, it did not erupt upwards. It did what's known as a lateral blast. The earthquake loosened the north face, which fell away, and the blast came this way. And nobody's really sure to this day whether it was the blast getting ready that caused the earthquake or whether it was the earthquake loosening the north face that caused the blast. Okay, In a sense, it doesn't matter because they're linked, but nobody's really sure what sequence actually happened there. After the eruption, this is what it looked like. Now, the geologist who was on duty in the trailer on that night into the morning was called Dr. David Johnston, 29-year-old father of three children, and he was killed instantly by the blast. He was one of the 57 people who died. The valley had gone after, this is a photograph taken from more or less the same place. The valley had gone, filled in with 600 feet depth of debris. The top of the mountain had gone, leaving this enormous gaping hole. The trees had all gone, either incinerated or buried, certainly snapped off their roots. As I said, Dr. David Johnston was gone. So now the observatory that they've built in more or less the same place where his trailer had once stood is named for him. The ridge is named Johnston Ridge, and hence the observatory there is the Johnston Ridge Observatory. That's what the volcano looks like now. 8,364 feet is its highest point, so it has lost... 1,313 feet. In March 1980, they knew something was going to happen because a bulge had started to appear on the um, on the north side of the volcano, growing at five feet per day. A bulge sort of growing on the side of the volcano like a pimple on the face of a teenager. In, and in the same way, it was clearly going to have to burst, <laughs> which is what it did. 
Somehow, the vent at the top of the volcano must have been far too plugged in with lava, so the force had to find another way out. And uh, it's not lava that causes this. The lava coming from the Cascade volcanoes is usually too thick to flow, but the lava heats up water in there, and it's a steam detonation that causes the eruptions in the Cascades. They are destructive volcanoes, not constructive. As I said, 230 square miles of forest destroyed. Here you can see the area that was destroyed, and also, this is the sort of area where mud flows flowed down the rivers, the South Fork Tootle River and the Kalama River and uh, down uh, Pine Creek and, sorry, that's Pine Creek, that's Swift Creek, that's Pine Creek, that's mud, Muddy River. Uh, these mud flows, fortunately, were contained in the Swift Reservoir, uh, whose depth they lowered by 20 feet. So mud flows did not go down, uh, destroying cougar and woodland, which they would have done if they hadn't had the foresight to lower the Swift Reservoir. That was one of their few success stories in this whole operation. But the South Fork uh, River was particularly devastated. There used to be a number of settlements down there. That happened within 30 minutes of the eruption occurring. Five hours later, the landslide north of the volcano got waterlogged and mud flows began down the North Fork Tootle River. And this was far more devastating. This destroyed huge amounts of stuff. If you've seen the pictures of mud flows going down rivers and bridges being washed away, railway lines being destroyed, there are such videos that you can find on YouTube and they feature the North Fork Tootle River. Fortunately, the town of Tootle itself is a little bit higher up than the river, so it didn't happen. But mud did eventually get down into the Cowlitz River at Castle Rock and into the Columbia River at Kelso, and so that the uh, draft of the Columbia River, which has to be open for shipping, was reduced to nine feet. And you can imagine the amount of cost that there was, therefore, in um, dredging the Columbia River. Now, we have said that Mount St. Helens... Things happened on a small scale that must have happened at the time of the worldwide flood. So let me show you some of the things that we think happened at the time of the worldwide flood. Because we think that the worldwide flood was a volcanic event. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Now, I'm going to give you some mechanistic details of how we think the flood came about. Please don't misunderstand me that I think the flood was only mechanistic. Why did the flood happen? The flood happened because the wickedness of men's hearts was always evil constantly. The flood was a judgment for sin. That's the reason why the flood came. That's the why. I'm just going to show you a little bit about the how for a moment. Is that okay? I shouldn't really divorce this sort of theology from the science, but I'm going to just for a moment. I will bring them back together again shortly. So the fountains of the great deep, we think, must have been massive volcanic activity. Cracks in the crust of the, uh, the pre-flood ocean uh, with superheated water being thrown into the atmosphere at supersonic speed, miles into the air in a similar way to the Mount St. Helens eruption, but on a much bigger scale. That water, superheated water, would eventually come down as rain. And it's that rain that we think then would have been what was meant by the windows of heaven. So you see, the source of the water would have been the water under the earth. There is still water in the mantle of the earth today. And these massive effects would have happened like that. 
Now, if you've heard people say in the past that they believed that there must have been a vapor canopy of water vapor around the earth before the flood, I need to let you know that we no longer believe that, and there are scriptural reasons why not. And if you want to ask me questions at lunchtime, you do that, and I'll explain it in more detail. It's too much of a bunny trail at the moment. But this is the mechanism that most creation, uh, creationists believe is the way that the flood happened, from water coming from the mantle of the earth being thrown up and coming down as rain. And that's what uh, divided the crust of the earth into tectonic plates. Other planets in the solar system don't have tectonic plates, only the earth. And so this volcanic activity, actually I think there's a couple of moons of I maybe I think I might back off on that. I think there's a couple of moons that may also have of Jupiter and Saturn that may also have tectonic plates for other reasons. But anyway, Mars doesn't have tectonic plates. This it shows you how we think that the tectonic plates on the Earth happened because of the flood. They're moving around very slowly today. But you see, they haven't always moved slowly. This is back to this idea that if something happens at a slow rate today, it must always have been slow. That's not the case. We think that it happened very rapidly indeed at the time of the flood. And I'll show you some reasons why. We think that the plates uh, plates moved catastrophically at the time of the flood. So we refer to this model as catastrophic plate tectonics. Now here in the Pacific Northwest, there is a plate off the coast of Washington and Oregon and British Columbia called the Juan de Fuca plate. Now, the Juan de Fuca plate is being subducted under the North American plate like this in a process that involves a lot of friction. This friction generates heat, which melts rock underground, and this rock, this molten rock, is what comes up and makes all the volcanoes of the Cascade Range. So that's the mechanism by which it happens. However... Evolutionists and creationists agree on this, but not on the time scale. And you can see why. Because if this took place very slowly over millions of years, how could that possibly generate enough heat to melt the rock? Whereas if it happened catastrophically, like striking a match on a matchbox, then it would generate enough heat to melt the rock. Plus, if this had happened millions of years ago, even if it had managed to happen, the rock would have gone hard by now. It would have solidified. Whereas the very fact that all the volcanoes are still active suggests that it didn't happen millions of years ago. We think it happened, it all began four and a half thousand years ago at the time of the worldwide flood. And so that model just shows that. Um, my friend, uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling has, I don't know what's going wrong in my computer, but it looks like it's about to crash again. But my friend, Dr. Andrew Snelling, I think I may have to deliberately crash it just to uh, just to go on. My friend Dr. Andrew Snelling from Mantis and Genesis wrote a two-volume book called Earth's Catastrophic Past, and that gives you all the details that you really need to know on how um, uh, we think the flood came about. But the trouble is that you need a degree in geology to understand his book, and if you don't have a degree in geology, that's why you might need my book, uh, Don't Miss the Boat, which is a, a noddy-level version of... Um, of the same thing. Noddy. Do you have not, you don't have Noddy in America, do you? Sorry. Sesame Street version of, uh, <laughs> that's the same, the same level I was trying to talk about. Sesame Street version of, uh, Dr. Snelling's book. Well, that's what I said the volcano looked like immediately after the eruption, but it doesn't look like that today. It looks like this. 
There are three changes in that photograph from the previous photograph that I want you to notice. One is the lava dome in the middle of the crater. I'm actually not going to talk about that. It's fairly straightforward to understand. I'll just say that basically lava is oozing out of a vent there slowly, and it's hard lava, and it's built this dome. And I'll just tell you this, that if it carried on going at that rate, the whole uh, the mountain would be restored to what it was before in about 150 years. Okay? Um, Second change are these canyons. Can you see these canyons here? They're very important. I'll talk about them for a minute. Those canyons, they were not there in the previous photograph. Third thing that's different are they green things. Plants have grown. Scientists saw that area beforehand when it looked like this, and they said nothing is ever going to grow there for a thousand years. Well, it has done. Okay, and the reason why it's grown is interesting to us. Before I tell you how the canyons were formed, let's have a look in the canyon. Because the canyons have revealed these things on the side. Can you see that on the side there, the laser point, there it is, the laser pointer is working. Can you see those sedimentary layers there? Sedimentary layers on the side of the canyon wall. Nobody would ever have allowed us to go in there and dig those out. So God did it for us. He made a canyon. And I'll tell you how he made the canyon shortly. But let's have a look at the layers, because you see layers like that all over the world. These layers are in Edinburgh and Scotland, and I've chosen those because these were studied by an early geologist called Dr. James Hutton, who didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the Bible, and he thought that these rocks proved that the earth was millions of years old. He was the man who invented the concept of millions of years. Some people think millions of years comes from radiometric dating. It doesn't. It came from a long time before radiometric dating was invented. It was James Hutton's idea because he didn't want to believe in God. He thought that these rocks here were laid down over millions of years and then turned by 90 degrees. Then he thought they were eroded to this line here over millions of years, and then these rocks laid down over millions of years on top. And the reason why we don't think he was correct is because of this line here, which is smooth. Can you see that? It's called an unconformity, and it's smooth. And unconformity is an erosion line. Erosion if it took even a 100 years, let alone millions of years, even if it took a 100 years, would be random and jagged. You only get smooth erosion if it happens very, very fast indeed. So we think, yes, these rocks were the older rocks. These rocks are older than those rocks by as much as about three or four months. We think they were laid down early in the flood and turned 90 degrees by the volcanic and seismic activities early in the flood, then eroded. As, uh, very quickly while still molten to that line and then uh, sedimentary rock put down as the flood was uh, more gentle towards the end of the flood uh, on top of that. And our evidence for that is back at Mount St. Helens because here are the sediments there. Exactly what you can see in what we often refer to as the Little Grand Canyon of the North Fork Tootle River. On uh, May the 18th, 1980, you've got this material at the bottom, which doesn't have much shape. But then after that, you've got 250 feet thickness of pyroclastic flow, where you've got the hot gases and dust going across the countryside, settling into layers. That happened in the next eruption on June the 12th, 1980. And th- that's where you get these sedimentary layers. How many millions of years did it take to form that? It's about a thousand layers over 25 feet thick. How many millions of years did that take? Well, it took, it didn't take millions of years. It took three hours, three hours. And yet uh, people think that a peach sandstone in the Grand Canyon must have taken millions and millions of years. But if that had formed at the same rate as the Mount St. Helens layers, it could have all been formed in about 11 days. 
back to the um, canyon. At the top of the canyon is a layer of mud. And that mud was deposited on March the 19th, 1982, during the last of the eruptions of the early 1980s. This was not a very big eruption. But what happened is that the eruption just provided enough uh, heat to melt the glacier in the crater that had formed, which picked up mud, and you got boiling hot mud coming out for a few miles uh, across the uh, pumice plain and carving out canyons. And this entire river system of canyons then, which looks very similar to the Grand Canyon with the same sort of shape, was carved out in the space of just nine hours, not millions of years. Just nine hours. At the same rate, the... Um, uh, the Grand Canyon could have been carved out in 16 days. And you'll notice there are streams going through these canyons. But the streams did not carve the canyons. The canyons were carved by the mud flows. Then the stream flowed through afterwards following the path of least resistance. And we know because there were eyewitnesses to these things. In the same way, we don't believe that the Colorado River carved out the Grand Canyon. We think that the Grand Canyon was carved out by flood water draining off the North American continent at the end of the flood, or maybe trapped flood water breaking out slightly afterwards, maybe. But it's basically as a direct or indirect result of the flood. That's what we think happened there. Because the Colorado River, we don't think, could have carved out that canyon. Now, I did mention, too, about all the trees on Spirit Lake, didn't I? Let's see what happens to those, because they get wet while they're floating there. But they get very, very wet. And what's more, if you look at this log, for instance, you'll see it's got the root ball left on the end. The actual roots themselves must have been left in the ground somewhere, but it's still got the root ball, so it takes in more water at that end, and eventually that end gets heavier. So it's eventually the trees float vertically. They bend up in the water like this until they're eventually vertical. Now, you would never have believed that this happened if you hadn't seen this photograph and people have seen basically what happened next. Because when they get very wet indeed, the only reason why wood floats is because it has air pockets. You know, there's air in it that enables it to float. The actual carbon material itself would sink. There are some types of hard wood from South America that will sink. Did you know there's certain hardwoods you can get that will sink with very little air in them? And these, when they get very wet, will sink, and they will sink vertically. So what happened for a period of about 10 years after the 1980 eruption is that sediment settled down at the bottom of Spirit Lake. Every so often a log would sink. Then you've got more layers, and another log would sink. Maybe one would sink prone just occasionally, just to show it's a random event. So you get layers of trees. You get trees buried vertically at different levels, beginning to look like the beginnings of a fossilized forest. In fact, very like what you see, for instance, here at Specimen Ridge in the Yellowstone National Park. Now, in that area, there are 27, or appear to be 27 layers of trees. So there used to be an interpretive sign there that said that there must have been 27 forests, one after the other, over a period of 50 million years. The thing is that when you dig down under those fossils, you find that they don't have any roots, because these are not fossil forests. These trees didn't grow there. They don't have roots. They only have a root ball. They must have been ripped from their roots somewhere else and transported by water, eventually sinking vertically. And you get fossil forests, so-called fossil forests, all over the world like this. I'm familiar with a, a similar one off the coast of Aberystwyth in uh, the west of Wales. 
that you get them almost everywhere that you can think of, the large numbers of them in different places in sedimentary rocks. So this did not take millions of years. We think this is a process that happened with trees being ripped from their roots early in the flood, floating around and eventually towards the end of the flood as the water was calmer, sinking vertically through the water. You see, the mistake that secular geologists make is by believing that something that happens slowly today must always have been going slowly. We've already said today that that's not true, haven't we? We've shown that their assumptions that rates have gone on continually is not true. And the Apostle Peter told us this when he said, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But it's mockers who say this. It is not true. And Peter is pointing out it's not true. And he goes on to say this. He says, They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished they deliberately overlook this they are deliberately ignorant as one person has once said they are thick on purpose they deliberately overlook this because it's not what they it's not their worldview it's not how they want to interpret things what do they, what are they deliberately ignorant of? They're deliberately ignorant that God made the world, which is what's saying there. The earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God. God made the world. That's the first thing that they're deliberately ignorant of. The second thing that they're deliberately ignorant of is that God flooded the world. There it is. In a nutshell, the reason why people get their geology wrong is because they refuse to accept that God made the world and God flooded the world. The reason why people believe in millions of years instead of believing that the world is 6,000 years old and that the flood was about 4,500 years ago, the reason why people refuse to believe that is because they refuse to believe that God made the world and God flooded the world. It's not hard, is it? This is not rocket science. That's it in a nutshell. You do not need a degree in science. Now, of course, if you want to study science and study all the other, uh, the details of this, like, for instance, the way that my friend Dr. Andrew Snelling has, wonderful. I'm so glad that Dr. Andrew Snelling is there doing all this research into what happened at the time of the flood. I'm so glad that people like Dr. Jason Lyle are there doing all this research about what happens in the, in the heavens and interpreting that biblically. I'm so glad for these clever people who have the letters PhD after the name. I don't. I'm just an ordinary educator. I just try and make these things simple for you. The bottom line is this. People refuse, even Christians, even Christians refuse to believe in the Bible's timescale and in the truth of the Bible and in the truth of the flood because they refuse to accept that God made the world and God flooded the world. And that's what Mount St. Helens teaches us. Our lessons have come by comparing Mount St. Helens to other things. So very quickly, in the last 10 minutes, let's have a look at this. Mount St. Helens, therefore, is a model for the flood. It helps us to understand the flood. 
But I remember my older son, who is actually no mean creation speaker himself, mentioned to me once that uh, not only is the flood a model for the second coming, but it's also a model for the first coming. It's a type of both the first coming and the second coming of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man, said Jesus in Luke 17. Well, Mount St. Helens, before the eruption, was very, very beautiful. I think that's very beautiful. It wasn't so beautiful when the eruption came, however. It caused a lot of devastation. This is a hotel called the Mount St. Helens Lodge. And it was um, operated by a man called Harry Truman. Now, he was called Harry Randall Truman, okay? This is not the former president. He was Harry S. Truman. This is Harry Randall Truman, and he owned this lodge. And he's well known for refusing to move from his house on Spirit Lake at the time of the eruption when the emergency was declared. He once said he thought there was a secret mine shaft that he would be able to go and hide in. Uh, he said, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it. The air is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is in between me and the mountain. The mountain's a mile away. The mountain ain't going to hurt me. By the way, I've had to clean that up, removing all the words beginning with the letter F from there. He was a very salty mouthed man. If you see, if you want to search for any videos of him speaking, make sure you've got your bleeper in place. Okay. Um, because he did, he did do some interviews. And he said, even God couldn't move me from this mountain. And actually, God decided not to move him from the mountain. That is not his grave. His sister had that stone erected. But that's not his grave, because his body's never been found. It must be somewhere there, 300 feet below Spirit Lake. as an eternal, really, testament to the power of God and the issue of the folly of trying to put God to the test. That wonderful fount of all knowledge, Wikipedia, says that the 1980 event was the deadliest and most destructive volcanic eruption in the history of the continental United States of America. A total of 57 people are known to have died. More were left homeless when the ash falls and pyroclastic flows destroyed or buried 200 homes. Here's a house moving away, being washed away on a river of mud. Here's a devastated area. Scientists said quite clearly, looking at that landscape, nothing is ever going to grow here for a thousand years. They were wrong. There's the same view. That's the hill they were looking at there. It's full of thick woodland. I can even take people through thick woodland where you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that you were in a landscape that's less, that's only just over 40 years old. That's a beautiful view of the landscape again. This is actually on the south side, but it is the area where the lahar came through, where everything was devastated by a mud flow. And these purple flowers are so beautiful, aren't they? But those purple flowers are important because they're responsible for the regeneration of the entire area. There they are closer together. They're called prairie lupins. Prairie lupins. Aren't they beautiful? They're only about that big. They're one of the smallest of the lupins. Prairie lupins, they are what are responsible for regenerating the area. Why? Because they've got nodules in their roots. Prairie lupins belong to a family of plants known as legumes. Have you heard that name? Peas and beans belong to the same family. I don't necessarily recommend that you try eating the uh, seeds of these plants. They're a bit inedible, but if you were pushed, you could probably manage them if you boil them half an hour. But then on the roots, they've got nodules. And these nodules generate nitrates, nitrogen chem compounds, 
from nitrogen in the air so that the plant can grow. Plants, most plants cannot make their own nitrates from nitrogen. But legumes can by these nodules, except that the plants don't actually. The plants don't make their own nitrates. What happens is those nodules get invaded by a type of soil bacteria called rhizobia. And it's the rhizobia that, um, the rhizobia that, uh, uh, fixes the nitrogen, takes nitrogen gas from the atmosphere and turns it into nitrates so that the lupin can grow. And when the lupin dies, the nitrates go into the soil so that other plants can grow. They're not the only plants in that area that do the job. There's also clovers and uh, there's also um, arctic lupins in the area, but a slightly bigger type of lupin. And there's also alder trees, red alder trees that do the same job. But the insignificant looking little prairie lupins are the ones that have done most of it. You've got these blue carpets that have covered the area and nitrated the soil. They've done far more than any of the other plants. And so that area is there. However, here's the thing. The rhizobia don't do that job out of the goodness of their own hearts. Rhizobia are in the soil all the time, so why doesn't the rhizobia make the nitrates in the soil? Because it can't. In order to produce that, that ni- those nitrates, the rhizobia needs some special sugar chemicals to aid them in their reproduction and growth. And only the legume plants, like the prairie lupin, can produce those sugars. So to summarize what I've just said, the prairie lupins cannot exist without the rhizobia, and the rhizobia cannot exist without the prairie lupins. So which evolved first? Isn't this beautiful? It should be pretty obvious to you that neither can evolve. Now, evolutionists know about this type of relationship, so there is a word for it. You know what the word is? Two organisms that depend on each other completely. It's a symbiotic relationship. You heard of that? It's a brief biology lesson here. Symbiosis, symbiotic relationship. The point is, no symbiotic relationship could ever evolve. Now, I can give you millions of other reasons why evolution can't happen, but here's just one. And again, we are back to Mount St. Helens. And this is why Mount St. Helens is such a wonderful place, because even the biology, it's the geology around Mount St. Helens shows that evolution can't happen, that there must have been a flood. But the biology near Mount St. Helens is showing you the same thing, because the whole area was regenerated so that plants are growing and woods are growing all over the area in a place that was supposed to be devastated for a thousand years. And why has it happened? It's happened because of a simple system called symbiosis that cannot possibly have evolved. Yes, I think my uh, my um, predecessor, Lloyd Anderson, was correct. Mount St. Helens is very special indeed. It's God's message to us, in a sense, at these in these times to remind us that these things have happened. So the area around Mount St. Helens today is very beautiful. I like the area around Mount St. Helens. Here's a view of the mountain across Spirit Lake. But I've shown you a view of Mount St. Helens across Spirit Lake, haven't I? There it is. That's beautiful. This is completely different, but it's still beautiful. And so what it tells me, it tells me that God is able to make beautiful things from things that were once broken. Is that true? God is able to make beautiful people from people who were once broken and sinful. People like you and like me, rebellion against God, when we bow the knee and we repent put our trust in Jesus Christ and we become beautiful in His sight. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.